Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. I really am so excited that you've decided to join us for this service. You know, people come to church or watch a church service online for lots of reasons. I don't know why you decided to join us today, but here's something I do know. God is at work in your life and he's brought you here to this place in this moment to accomplish his purposes. Since people grow here, you will leave changed. I trust his work in your life. So can you. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. We have a fantastic team who work tirelessly to help people grow. We love helping you discover the best path forward to deepening your spiritual roots, whether you are here in the room or watching online, live or on demand at some point in the future. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that we are a come-as-you-are kind of church. We don't have any perfect people here. We are all in process, working through our junk, and sometimes that is a messy process. So if you can embrace our mess, we'll embrace yours, and together we'll let God work to clean it all up. And if you're just checking out Jesus and church, this is a safe place to bring your questions and doubts. We're all on a journey. And wherever you are on your journey, welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, Let's join our service. Okay, how many of you remember being in school? I, I know it's been a very long time for some of us and a, a very, very long time for a few of you. But picture in your mind that first day of school after the new year. Uh, you've had a great Christmas vacation. You did your best not to think about school at all, except for the homework that some teacher decided to torture you with over the holidays, and you just crammed that in last night. Remember those days? <laughs> and then the teacher gets up and says something like, who can remember where we were before Christmas break? and your mind is completely blank. You put it out of your mind for two weeks. Forget getting it back. Did that ever happen to anyone besides me? You know, I've, I've been in ministry for more than 30 years, and for all of that time, as soon as Sunday is over, it is filed away to make room for next Sunday, which is coming up like clockwork in seven days. Don't ask me what we did last week. I'm already working on next week. So here we are the week after Easter. We pushed pause on our series in the Gospel of John to focus on the bad boys of Easter. Now, where were we again? Anyone? Yeah, you see, that's what I thought. So before we get to today's passage, let's just take a little stroll down memory lane. Uh, the Apostle John wrote what we call the book of John near the end of his life, most likely when he was living in Ephesus after his exile on the Isle uh, of Patmos. By this point in time, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had been circulating in the church for several decades, depending on when they were written. 
Each of them told the story of Jesus from different perspectives, and they included many of the same events taken mostly from Jesus' ministry in Galilee. In his commentary, Charles Swindoll tells us that now, decades later, the church was no longer a budding movement, but an established community of system and thought. The challenges were different than when Christianity was in its infancy. The danger came less in the form of physical attacks or religious opposition and more through philosophical corruption and theological compromise. Gnosticism was one of those threats. In a nutshell, the Gnostics believed that Jesus came to earth as a spirit, not as a physical being. They had a dualistic view of the world and the, the physical and the spiritual. The physical was bad, the spiritual was good. Since Jesus was good, he must have been a spirit, not a physical being. Like the Stoics, the Gnostics had been influenced by the Logos movement. Logos is simply Greek for the word. Uh, Logos taught that the universe operated according to a rational structure a unified ordering principle. And if one carefully observed its patterns and solved its riddles, then this structure could be observed. So right from his opening words, John sought to connect this Logos movement to Jesus. But the word wasn't just some abstract idea. Jesus was the word made flesh. He is God in a bod. Now, Matthew's gospel focused on Jesus as the king of the Jews. Mark focused on Jesus as the perfect servant. Luke focused on Jesus as the perfect man. John rounded out the church's understanding of Jesus, shaped by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, by proclaiming Jesus the Son of Man as God in the flesh, completely human, flesh and blood, and at the same time, completely God. So his gospel was written a little differently than the others. While they focused more on the events of Jesus' life and ministry, John instead built a case to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. And to that end, he presents the miracles of Jesus, which he calls signs, as proof of his divinity. He also gives us the why behind many of the miracles to help us understand how they reveal Jesus as God. John presents Jesus in this way because he wants us to believe in Jesus so that we can build our lives on Jesus. To believe from John's perspective is more than just head knowledge. To really believe, that belief must move us to action. It must move us to increasingly think like, believe like, and act like Jesus. Belief that doesn't move us to that action isn't belief from John's way of thinking. Okay, I think that's enough to bring us up to speed. So if you haven't already done so, why don't you turn or navigate to John chapter 14 in your Bible or Bible app. We're going to spend just a couple of minutes in the first verse of chapter 13 before jumping to chapter 14. Chapter 13 begins like this. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave the world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. Now, chapter 13 marks a major transition in the Gospel of John. The first 12 chapters describe Jesus' public ministry over the course of about three years. And as we've already talked about, give witness to some pretty spectacular miracles 
as proof of Jesus' divinity. Chapters 13 to 20 take us behind closed doors to witness the private teaching that Jesus gave his disciples over about the last four days of his time on earth. And then chapter 21 is considered the epilogue of John because it covers the 40 days after the resurrection. Now, as we've been doing all along, I'm giving you homework to complete on your own this week. If you're new to Day Spring, you should probably know that we believe that you are responsible for your own spiritual journey. And we want to help you on your own journey. So in this series, we've been giving homework. We have a couple of study questions in the message notes to help you. And you can find those on our website. This week, chapter 13 is your homework. With the exception of the last few verses, which cover Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial, and we're going to look at them to help us understand verse 14, we covered most of chapter 13 in one way or another as we prepared for Easter, talking about the bad boys of Easter. So wherever you are on your journey toward Christian maturity, read and process chapter 13 this week. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you might want to listen to the beginning of our first message in this series. I explain it all there. Which brings us to almost chapter 14. Now, I'm going to pick it up in the last few verses of chapter 13. Without them, the first verse of 14 doesn't make any sense. So Judas, Jesus has just released Judas to betray him. And as soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I am going. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Now, we could camp out on verses 34 and 35 for a while if we had time, but since we don't, you hear me say this often. Love is supposed to be the defining characteristic of our lives. Everything we do measured by love. Uh, love, and this is what Jesus means here, love isn't love until you give it away. If you don't give it away, it isn't love. We love God by giving away God-honoring love to others. At its most basic level, this is what defines spiritual growth. Did I love more today than I did yesterday? If so, I've grown. So prove you are my disciples by loving each other. Then Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord? He asked, I'm ready to die for you. Jesus answered, die for me. I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And of course, we know that Peter does exactly that in just a few short hours. But right now, he's confused and probably a little hurt that Jesus would think that he would betray Jesus. And he isn't the only one confused. They all are. Uh, where is Jesus going? What does that mean for them? Uh, Jesus' answer doesn't really answer their question, which leads us into chapter 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. Now, it's easy to see 
why the disciples' hearts were in turmoil. They've gone all in with Jesus, but now he's leaving. Now what? They've left their jobs, they've left their families, they've given up their homes, their security, their future, and now their future is telling them that he's going to leave them to go someplace else. Of course their hearts are troubled. Of course there is turmoil, turmoiling in their hearts. But they aren't the only ones who deal with turmoil in their hearts, are they? We aren't all that different from them. Our hearts get caught up in fear and anxiety as well. We wrestle him for control, for some semblance of stability and normalcy in our lives when it feels like life is out of control. We worry about tomorrow. We worry about our kids. We worry about our finances. We worry about our jobs, our health. We worry about the chaos that we see happening in the world around us. We are an anxious people. We have a hard time really trusting God. The good news is that Jesus' words weren't just for the disciples. They're for us too. Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust God. Trust Jesus. I know, easier said than done. Nonetheless, because Jesus' words are for us too, we can claim the promises that follow. In fact, in these next verses, Jesus gave the disciples six assurances or six promises that are all ours too. And if we will adopt these promises into our thinking process, they will help calm our troubled hearts. The first promise you can hold on to, you are going to heaven. You are going to heaven. Let's read the next few verses. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. Uh, no, we don't, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going. So how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, according to Jesus, heaven is a real place. It isn't made up fiction. It's real. It is the place that God dwells and where Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. In his letter to the church, Peter describes heaven as our inheritance. But here, John says it is home. It is home for God's children. Uh, for those of us who grew up with the good old King James Version, we've grown up singing about and believing in our mansion in the sky. The King James Version translates the original Greek word in verse 2 as mansion. Here in the New Living Translation, we read it as more than enough room. Down in verse 23, the same word is translated as, room, as home. It means rooms, abiding places. So contrary to King James, we shouldn't really think of it as we get our own mansion. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I have countless times pictured getting away from it all in my heavenly mansion that opens up onto the perfect beach and ocean scene. It is divine. That's not really the promise here. It might be an apartment in the house of God. Uh, whatever it is, I'm absolutely positive we won't be disappointed because whatever it is, we will dwell with God. Verse 3 is a clear promise that Jesus will return for us. We know from other places, uh, as, as well as experience, that some of us will get to heaven through the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe most of us. 
But there will be some who receive their glorified bodies in an instant when Jesus returns for the church, never experiencing physical death. Personally, I'd prefer to go that way. But either way, heaven is a real place and there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying or pain or night, none of the bad stuff. But not everyone is going to heaven. Only those who have trusted Jesus Christ. He is, as he says here in verse 6, the only way. It's interesting, really. Through all of time, in every culture, every other religion, including some offshoots of Christianity that are then no longer Christianity, require that you do what it takes to get to heaven. You have to be good enough, give enough, do enough good works. But there is no other way except through Jesus. You can't be good enough to get there on, their, on your own. You couldn't give enough to get there on your own. You couldn't be religious enough to get there on your own. Only through Jesus and for those of us who have already trusted Christ, the promise of heaven at the end of our earthly experience can give us peace in the midst of our turmoil. No matter how bad it gets, we know where we're going. Now in this next section, we'll see the next assurance. You know the Father right now. You know the Father right now. Let's continue in verse 7. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. One of our deepest needs, whether we know it or not, is knowing and being known by God. That need is hardwired into every person. So if knowing and being known by God is one of the highest aims of life, then the good news is we don't have to wait until heaven to know God the Father. As Christ followers, we know him right now. We would have expected Philip to already understand that Jesus, to know Jesus is to know God. After all, this, this isn't the first time the subject has come up. And by the way, Jesus' question in verse 10 is phrased in the original, the way it's phrased in the original language, Jesus expected a yes from Philip as well. After all, he had a front row seat to the miracles and words and person of Jesus for about three years. But Jesus doesn't chastise him. He just tells Philip to believe. And then in verse 11, says the same thing to the rest of the disciples. Believe. And in the original language, it would mean go on believing. Let your faith grow. The word know, K-N-O-W, that we see laced through these verses is used 141 times in John's gospel. But it doesn't always mean the same thing. There are four levels of knowing from John's perspective. The lowest level is simply knowing a fact. I might know there is a God, but it's simply information to me. The second level of knowing is to understand the truth behind that fact. In this case, God exists, and he is the one who created you and me and everything in the universe. You can know the fact and the truth behind the fact and still not be a Christ follower. The third level of knowing introduces relationship. 
To know means to believe in a person and become related to him or her. In the Bible, this to know describes the intimacy between a husband and wife, which probably explains why so many of us have a hard time really knowing God at this third level. We've so messed up the intimacy between husband and wife that we don't know what true intimacy actually looks like. We wouldn't recognize it if we saw it. And yet, there is an even higher level of intimacy. The fourth level of know means to have a deeper relationship with a person, a deeper communion. This is what the Apostle Paul meant in Philippians 3.10 when he said, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Jesus will come back to this level of know in just a few verses. So we'll wait until then to unpack it some more. Uh, For now... Why should you have troubled hearts? We know God. We know the creator of the universe. He is in control. There isn't any need for us to be troubled. He's got this. The third assurance Jesus promises us is you have the privilege of prayer. You have the privilege of prayer. Let's read the next four verses beginning in verse 12. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done, and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it, so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, obey my commandments. Warren Wearsby writes, one of the best remedies for a troubled heart is prayer. But before we get too excited and think that these verses are promising a blank check, so to speak, there are some conditions to God answering our prayers the way Jesus describes here. First, verse 12 tells us that they must be prayed in faith. Uh, We must believe, as we see here in the New Living Translation. And by the way, the greater works here would initially apply to the apostles. We know from other passages that the power to perform special miracles came with the credentials of their office. And Jesus wasn't talking about the quality of their miracles, just the scope and quantity. Uh, For example, Peter preached and 3,000 people believed in one day. That people who weren't God performed these kind of miracles, brought great glory to God. That's what made them greater works. I mean, a miracle of any kind from any source is pretty spectacular. But we kind of expect God to be able to do them. It just gets cooler when God works them through others. So for the record, it wasn't the apostles themselves performing the miracles any more than it is us now. God working through the apostles performed the miracles. The same is true today. Any miracle is God working through us. And it is faith that releases the power of God in and through us. We find the second condition for answered prayer in verse 13, that we pray in Jesus' name. Again, not a formula to get our genie God to grant our wishes. Praying in Jesus' name means asking what Jesus would ask. Asking what would please him and bring him glory. That means we have to know his nature. We have to know what he is and what he wants to do. As Wearsby says, God answers prayers in order to honor his name. Therefore, prayer must be in his will which really does elevate the importance of living out our relationship with God at that fourth level of knowing God. And then verse 15 tells us that we must pray out of loving obedience. 
And again, we see the theme of love woven throughout John's gospel. Love would never bring dishonor. So we live lives of loving obedience. Or try to, most of the time. How beautifully reassuring is it that we have the privilege of participating in God's work as we pray? Bringing us to promise number four. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. This isn't the only time that Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit in these final days. So we'll come back to him again. But here, Jesus says in verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, the Holy Spirit is given two names here by Jesus. Another advocate, traditionally translated comforter, and the spirit of truth. The Greek word that is translated advocate here is only used by John. And once in, it's used several times in in his gospel and once in 1 John. The word means called alongside to assist meaning the Holy Spirit does not work instead of us or in spite of us, but in and through us. The idea here is that as our advocate, the Holy Spirit gives us strength, uh, strength to boldly face whatever is before us, strength to keep on going. He empowers us. Uh, Additionally, as we see in 1 John, an advocate is one who represents you in court, like a lawyer, someone who stands up for you and pleads your case, which is what the Holy Spirit does for us. Jesus advocates for us before God the Father from the right hand of the throne of God. The Holy Spirit is another advocate on our behalf from his dwelling place in us. And as the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit is related to truth, i.e. Jesus and the Word of God, uh, both of which are the truth. And as the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit will never lead us to anything but truth or anything contrary to the word of God. The Holy Spirit will never lie to us. Uh, One difference between the methodology of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is illustrated in the last sentence of verse 17. It says, but you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon men and women, empower them to accomplish God's work, and then leave them. It is never described as dwelling in them uh, in, the, in the Old Testament. Uh, we see this most clearly in the lives of King Saul and King David. The Holy Spirit came upon King Saul when he was made king and then departed because of Saul's sin. The Holy Spirit also came upon David, and when he was confessing his sin in Psalm 51, David asked that the Holy Spirit not be taken from him. Uh, Given the nature of their role, it would make sense that the Holy Spirit had come upon the disciples in the same way prior to Jesus' death and resurrection. Hence the phrase, he lives with you now. But once Pentecost hit, 40 days after the resurrection, everything changed. From that point on, the advocate would take up permanent residency in those of us who follow Christ. 
He abides in us. And Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as a better solution to living for the believer. Uh, In his human body, Jesus could only be in one place at a time. But as the Spirit, there are no limits. There is more than enough Spirit to go around. And even though we sin like David, the Holy Spirit will never be taken from us. We will never be orphaned, meaning that we will never be alone. Never abandoned, never helpless, never hopeless. Bringing comfort to our troubled hearts. Promise number five. You enjoy the Father's love. You enjoy the Father's love. Verse 19 down through verse 24. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. When I am raised to life again, you will know. Here's that fourth level of know that we talked about earlier. You will know that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them. And I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other disciple with that name said to, said to him, Lord, why are you going to reveal yourself only to us and not to the world at large? Jesus replied, all who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them and we will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember, my words are not my own. What I am telling you is from the Father who sent me. Now, notice the repetition of the word love. The more we love, the more we love the word of God, the more we love by obeying it, the more we love like Jesus, the more love of the Father that is returned to us. We fourth level know God more the more we love like Jesus. Remember that Jesus was pretty clear. We love him by loving others. And the opposite is also true. We don't love others. We don't love Jesus. The two are inextricably connected. So the more we walk in the obedience of love, the more we will level for know God, taking us deeper into the perfect love of God. And the perfect love conquers fear. Perfect love calms our anxious hearts. Perfect love gives us the sixth promise. You have the gift of peace. Verse 25. I am telling you these things now while I am still with you. But when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Now I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. In the Jewish world, that would be shalom, peace. But it is more than simply the absence of conflict and distress. Shalom means wholeness, completeness, health, security, even prosperity in the best sense of the word, which is completely different than the kind of peace the world offers. Apart from Christ, people only enjoy peace in the absence of trouble. Christians enjoy peace in spite of trouble. Apart from Christ, peace is dependent on circumstances. With Christ, peace is determined by relationship. And that relationship literally lives in us. So if at any time we are peaceless, we just have to press into the Holy Spirit. He gives peace. That's what he does. 
We just have to choose to receive it. Okay, let's finish out this chapter. Verse 28. Remember what I told you. I am going away, but I will come back to you again. If you really loved me, you would be happy that I'm going to the Father who is greater than I am. Now, in this context, Jesus isn't denying his equality with God. When Jesus accepted his earthly assignment, he added humanity to his divinity. He didn't subtract divinity from his godness. He added humanity. Having a human body came with some limitations. So he voluntarily laid aside some of his divine attributes for a season as he submitted himself to God the Father. So in that sense, the Father was greater than Jesus for a season in time. Once Jesus returned to heaven, that which he had laid aside was restored to him. He continues, I have told you these things before they happen so that when they do happen, you will believe. I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world approaches. He has no power over me, but I will do what the Father requires of me so that the world will know that I love the Father. Come, let's be going. The but in verse, uh, that begins verse 31 is important here. Satan has no power over Jesus, period. But... In his role as the sacrifice for our sin, he would allow Satan to seemingly have his way. It would look like Satan had power over Jesus. But even then, Satan was a tool to accomplish God's purposes. Meaning that he, he didn't really have any power over Jesus at all. Ever. Like Jesus, the ruler of this world doesn't have any power over us. Unless we choose to give him a foothold. And if we embrace the peace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, he also cannot steal our peace. Now, as a quick side note, that last sentence, come, let's be going, indicates a change of scenes. Uh, though the next three chapters are sometimes included in what is called the upper room discourse, technically they are not. Scholars believe that they still happened during this last four-ish days of Jesus' time on earth, but just not in the upper room. Remember that John isn't giving us a chronological picture of Jesus' life and ministry. He's building a case that Jesus is God in the flesh. So everything he writes is written to support that truth. Okay, back to our promise. It doesn't matter how long you are a believer. You never completely outgrow the tension between faith and fear, faith and anxiety, faith and a troubled heart. It's, it's all the, the same thing, really. When you are just learning to follow Christ, your steps of faith are, let's call them baby steps. God stretches you little by little. But as you grow in Christ, what used to take faith doesn't really take faith anymore. God already has a track record in that small stuff, though it didn't seem small at the time, but to prove that he's got your back, which gives you peace. But then he decides to take you deeper, so those baby steps, baby steps get farther and farther apart, requiring more faith which makes it easy for your troubled heart to once again hold you back. When the stakes are bigger, the stakes are high. <laughs> when the risk is bigger, the stakes are higher. A failure often has more consequences, which is anxiety-inducing. So you never really completely outgrow that tension, which means that we are all in good company. Uh, you aren't alone. Look to your left. 
and you're right, and there is someone who has struggled with a troubled heart, might currently be struggling with a troubled heart, or will struggle with a troubled heart. It's just the nature of a growing faith. We can come back to these six promises again and again as we grow. We change, our lives change, our circumstances change, but these promises stay true forever. And here's something you might not really have ever thought about. A troubled heart, the lack of peace, fear, anxiety, whatever you want to call it, the presence of a troubled heart is actually a gift. It's a gift because it tells you something. It identifies an area of weakness in your faith. It gives you an opportunity to grow in your faith, to go deeper, to become more like Jesus. A troubled heart is a signal that God wants to do something new in you. So you should pay attention. That's a gift. Anything that helps you become more like Jesus is a gift. Open it. Open it with great expectation. When God does something new, it's really cool. Let's pray. Father, in these moments, in this room, watching online, we have people in your presence who are here with troubled hearts, who are facing challenges in their lives and um, faith opportunities that, that are scary or challenges that um, seem just too hard to get through. Thank you for these promises. Thank you that um, our peace isn't determined by our circumstances. Thank you that our peace is determined by our God. And Father, our prayer this morning is that we would learn how to embrace these promises in a way that leave us trusting you more. Leave us with deeper roots, more in love with God and more able to give that love away. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions alone or with others will help the truth of God's Word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of people like you, people who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring. Your financial generosity is proof of God's work in your life. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also. Thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you're on. It means a lot to me when you pass on the good news of Jesus to your friends and family. Until next week.
may you experience God's favor and blessing in your life.